you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And before we dive into this text tonight, I want to share something with you, uh, just real briefly, kind of a, a pastoral note. Um, a couple of years ago, I started writing down, just putting down on paper, some of the things we were walking through as a faith family, uh, some of the biblical foundations for what does it mean for our lives to be created for the glory of Christ in all nations and for us as a church to be commissioned for the glory of Christ in all nations? And, and that truth that we were walking through and have been walking through over and over again as a church, I wanted to put that down on paper, if for nothing else, to be able to give to new members who come to this faith family just to see that the foundation really around which everything we do uh, revolves. And so I started writing that down, and some people looked at it and said, this, this needs to be published, and I thought, I don't know if there's anything worth publishing here. And long story short, um, a publisher out in uh, Colorado Springs, Multnomah, which is a division of Random House, um, said, we really would like to, to publish this. And so began working with them on uh, fleshing out some more and really over the last couple of years, fleshing out all that we've been studying as a faith family and stories of how that is playing out in your lives as a faith family. And long story short, what I wanted you, I want you to be aware of this, I want you to hear this from me, but coming in a few weeks um, is a, uh, a book called uh, Radical, aptly titled, uh, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith in the American Dream. So, uh, yeah, it's a book like with my name on it. So, uh, I wanted you guys to... Hear that from me. Be aware of that. It's coming out May 4th. Uh, and I want you to hear my heart on this whole picture. Like, my heart is not to sell books. Like, when my small group found out that I was working on a writing project, they were like, so does this mean that your face is going to be on the cover of a book, like smiling at us in Walmart when we go to check out? And I said, absolutely, that is not what this means. Um, my... my my art is not to sell books. I want, I want to love Christ. I want to lead my family. I want to shepherd you well. And I, I hope do all of those things in a way that promotes the glory of Christ in all nations. And if, if this can be a tool and instrument to help promote the glory of Christ in all nations, then, then that's, that's good. But I, that's, that's what I, I pray that Anything that comes out of this, and I want you to know, like, my goal is not personal profit here in any way. Like, the, it says in the front of this book, uh, I'll quote here, the author's royalties from this book, and, like, there may not be any royalties. Like, nobody may buy the thing, so that's kind of presumptuous, I guess. But uh, anyway, if a couple of people were to buy it, those royalties will go toward promoting the glory of Christ in all nations. Like, I want to be above reproach in every way on this picture. I've been looking at 1 Corinthians last, this last week. and I, Paul talks about not wanting to peddle the gospel or even be open to that charge. And, oh, I want that to be the case. And, I mean, the book's about, like, selling your possessions and sacrificing your possessions. So even if some people did buy it, it really, I don't have a lot of leeway to go and live it up based on royalties. Uh, because I'm pretty much stuck with the message. So um, anyway, uh, Heather and I were laughing even this last week, and this doesn't have to do with the book, but I got an invitation. You'll appreciate this. I got an invitation to preach uh, on a conf at a conference on a cruise ship. And I thought, huh, like how do they listen to anything we're talking about here? Like... 
how can I go and preach this message on a cruise ship? Uh, and <laughs> we were joking about it with the elders. The elders were like, well, preach another message. Go on the cruise. And uh, <laughs> jokingly, uh, and I told Heather, I was like, babe, I'm so sorry. Like, you are stuck with me as husband and pastor and trying to work out all these truths and the adjustment that means for our life. And then when I get an offer to go on a free cruise, I, mean, I can't go preach on a cruise. So no, I told him no. And so I apologize to Heather for that. Anyway, that has nothing to do. I just want you guys to be aware of this. I want you to hear my heart on this. Um, we're, well, actually, it comes out May 4th, uh, which is a Tuesday. The weekend before is Secret Church. And so we'll have them here on, on Friday. We'll have some copies here on Friday night uh, at Secret Church as well as that Sunday. Again, any copies today? I mean, none of it's going to promote David Platt, so there's no need to, I, I don't think there's a need to go turn over tables out there when you see, when you see the book. Okay, enough said, on to a much better book. First Samuel, uh, chapter 17. You've got at the top of your notes there, it says a chronicle of redemption, and I want to recap where we've been because we're entering into a new phase in this story of redemptive history. And so I want you to think about where we've been so far this year. We started with prologue week one, Genesis 1 through 11, creation. And we're going, the end goal is we're going to get to new creation, recreation. But there's a whole process of redemption in between. And so part one was redemption promised to a covenant people. That started in Genesis 12 and went all the way through the end of Exodus. And what we saw is God initiating two major covenants with his people. First, covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, other places, covenant with Abraham. And then, starting in Exodus 3 and really solidified at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant with Moses. And so you've got God relating to his people through covenants. So we looked at that. Then we moved into next part, part two, the law of the land, where Leviticus, they receive the law. It's the giving of the law. Numbers, they take a roundabout way to get to the promised land. Deuteronomy, they're on the edge of the promised land, on the precipice of that land, and they review the law, they hear the law again a second time, and then Joshua, they take the land. Judges, which we've just finished reading, is them settling into the land, and things are not going well. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, and moral deterioration, spiritual idolatry, uh, immorality, sexual immorality, like it's just rampant evil. And they were wanting a king. They're not wanting a king that will help them relate to God in covenant. They're wanting a, a king that will be just like the other pagan nations around them and the pagan kings that they have and the power that that supposedly brings. And so they're crying out for a king. And so that leads us to part three, failed kings in a united kingdom. And over the next, I think it's about ten weeks, as we read through the Bible and as we gather together in our worship gatherings, we're going to see King Saul first, then King David, and really we'll see them both side by side tonight in a, in a startling contrast. And then we will see King Solomon, David's son, third. So over the next three weeks, that's where we're going, or next about ten weeks, that's where we're going to be looking at those three kings. Today we come to a pivotal picture of David and David in relationship to Saul. Now 1 Samuel 17, just so you know, is one of the longest narratives, one of the longest stories, and it's just filled with details. It's almost like the author is putting in details everywhere, maybe even not details that are necessary, but he is wanting this story to be etched in 
in people's hearts. And so what I want us to do is I want us to read this story in all of its details. I want us to do what we have done oftentimes with Old Testament narrative and just read a little bit and pause along the way so we make sure we're getting the whole story and feeling the effect of this story. But I, wanna, I want us to draw it out much like they did and then I want us to think about what this means. This is a pretty common story. Um, even people who have not grown up in church are most often familiar with David and Goliath, at least a cursory familiarity. And and I think it's, it's so common that we, we end up missing the point. We think this is a moral tale of a boy who stands up and, with bravery and courage against a giant. And it becomes, it get, takes on all kinds of applications that I, I'm not sure are really intended by this passage. And so I want us to read the story and think about what it, what it really means. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So you got the picture. You got two mountains with a valley in between, kind of a dried up ravine in the middle there. And the Philistines are on one mountain. Israelites are on one mountain. And the valley is where the battle is going to take place. So that's kind of the setup here. Get to verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A champion. This chapter is the only time that word is used in the entire Old Testament. It literally means the man between two armies. Like the decisive man. And this was without question a decisive man between two armies. He is six cubits and a span tall, which works out to about nine foot nine inches. Bro is NBA material all the way. Like, he's, he's standing eye level almost with the rim. Like, that works well in basketball. So that's the kind of height you got on this guy. But then if you know basketball, like, a lot of taller guys in the NBA are, are kind of lanky, even a little awkward, if I could say that about a multimillionaire who is an incredible athlete, awkward, and... That's not the case with Goliath. Next verse, verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail, like a full-length coat. And it says the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Works out to about 125 pounds. That's a coat. Like, he is wearing more than some of the Israelites weigh. He's got this coat. And in addition to this coat, he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung beneath, beneath, between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head, the point of the spear, weighed 600 shekels of iron, 15 pounds. The point of the spear weighed 15 pounds. This guy is undoubtedly the man. And to take it one step further, his shield bearer went before him. Not only does 
You see this giant, brute man with all of this heavy armor that he is able to move fluidly in. He's got a sidekick who goes with him and carries a shield the size of a man. You notice when Goliath shows up at the party. And so what happens is Goliath shows up. It says in verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So basically, what we've got here, first two facets of the story. One, an invincible character. This is the most detail we have about a warrior and all of the reasons why you would not want to come face to face with this guy in battle. An invincible character and second, an impossible challenge. Basically, what Goliath has just done is he has challenged some poor Israelite to a game of one-on-one with him. Mano y mano. Goliath versus one person in a fight. Who would want to do that? Who would want to go against this man? Like, I, I've shared with you before, uh, uh, my older brother Steve was uh, in high school, heavyweight state wrestling champion, and he was the man. Like, in that heavyweight state wrestling championship match, he just picked up this 300-pound guy and threw him on his back. Like, you don't play with, with, with my older brother Steve. And we had one good friend, kind of a country kind of guy, and uh, he, he always said, well, David, I think you got pushed away from the trough at your home, and uh, I think that would be accurate. Like, I would, I would not describe myself as a strong, brute man. Like, uh, you know, I know that's surprising. This was in high school. I mean, now things are different, but uh, appreciate you laughing at that. Uh, so, so Steve and I, a little different, and the unfortunate thing, my brother Adam's down here, like, we, we were instruments for practice with our older brother Steve. And so the only weapon in my arsenal was run. Like, that was the weapon that I would use, and it was a weapon of avoidance. It was more, I was more passive when it came to wrestling with Steve. And I could outrun him, and that was key. So that's exactly where the Israelites find themselves. It says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid, i.e., I'm not going out there. Even Saul, who is the only one physically qualified closest one physically qualified to go to, to Goliath. We learn earlier in 1 Samuel that Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. But he is going to sit back and do nothing. Scared as can be along with all of the other 
Israelites. So that's the scene when you get to the end of verse 11. You've got this giant of a man defying Israel. Not just the people of Israel, but the God of Israel. Shouting out, shaming them. And the Israelites, the whole army of thousands sitting back in fear. And then it's almost movie-like. It's just an immediate cut to another scene. So you go from the battlefield to a nice sunny meadows with a handsome shepherd boy, David. Verse 12, was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So what you've got is three of David's brothers are on the battlefield watching this take place. And David's back here caring for the animals. And so... David's father, Jesse, calls him aside. In verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and I love this phrase right here, and bring some token from them. Like, bring a little something back from the battlefield. Jesse has no clue what David's going to bring back from the battlefield. Like, he's going to bring back Goliath's head. How's that for a token? A nine-foot-nine guy's head you're going to bring back. So anyway, we don't know that yet, but it's just kind of interesting to think about. So he says, I need you to go to the battlefield, take them resources, find out how they're doing, bring something back from them. And so, verse 19, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. So he got there in the morning. And so the picture is just a little background there, about 15-mile journey. So David left early in the morning, got there early in the morning, which means he just, you know, ran a nice half marathon in preparation for what's about to happen as he takes on this giant. And so he gets there. Verse 21. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, it is again, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Now I want you to picture this scene. This just shows again the towering nature of Goliath. That when he comes out, he speaks, he shouts. Exactly what he shouted before. He shouts. And all of these other conversations that are going on among thousands of Israelite soldiers are immediately silenced. And they go into panic as he speaks. And he's done this for 40 plus days. Now put yourself in David's shoes. As you hear this, as you hear this guy come out 
and defy not just the people of Israel, but the God of Israel and to shame the God of Israel. Maybe, maybe the first time that David had ever heard the name of God defamed. What's going through his head as he hears that and then sees all the people of God, all the Israelites, all these soldiers go into panic and fear. And so David starts asking, what is going on here? Verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will, now here's what the king is going to do. King Saul sitting back doing nothing, so he offers a, a prize for anybody who will go out and fight Goliath. And here's what he offers. Three things. The king will enrich the man who kills him with, number one, great riches. So great riches, assuming, of course, that you defeat Goliath. Second, we'll give him his daughter. We find out later, Saul's daughter, not necessarily that much of a reward, but it's part of the package. And so you've got, you've got riches, you've got wife, his daughter, and then make his father's house free in Israel, which is basically free from taxes, obligations. Like, what an appropriate text for this week, even. Like, how great would it be to be free from taxes? Uh, like, forever. So, anyway, um, I mean, we pay our taxes, but it would be nice. So, I guess, I'm guessing there's a few people in here who wouldn't mind taking on Goliath if that was at stake right now. Save a lot of trouble this week. Some CPAs wouldn't mind doing that. So here's the picture. That's what's before him. David responds, said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. I want you to notice with me here how David's description of this scene is totally different from the way these other guys were talking about this scene. They say to David, did you see this man, the man who came up? David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Like, who does he think he is apart from the people of God? worshiping other idols, not a part of the covenant people of God. Who is this, who is this guy? And earlier the, he said he's come to defy Israel. David says he's come up to defy the armies of the living God. This is deeper than just defying an army. This is defying a God, true God. And so David is getting incensed at this picture. He keeps asking around, verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, little note about Eliab in 1 Samuel 16 Right before this, when Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, Eliab was the logical choice. He was the guy when, you, when Samuel shows up, hey, this guy needs to be the next king. But that's where we find that verse, that man looks at outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And so David was anointed, and, and the, the reasonable choice watches that happen. Probably a bit bitter. His eldest brother heard when he spoke to them, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? It's almost derogatory here. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Like, where are your animals? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? Is it not but a word? Like, calm down, bro. Just asking some questions. Verse 30, 
He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as again as before. So David is researching and making it clear that he is willing to take on Goliath. Now that word starts to spread, and it spreads eventually to Saul. And here's what happens. The words that David spoke were heard. They repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for him, for David. And so now we're going to see these two guys, the present king of Israel, the future king of Israel, face to face. And we're going to see a contrast between the two of them. Verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. You see his boldness, his courage, his confidence. And Saul replies, Saul said to David, verse 33, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul is looking at David just like the world would look at David. Not a chance. 20-year-old, maybe a little less, shepherd. This giant who is a warrior. There's no way. So David said to Saul, it's one of two kind of impassioned, powerful, many speeches from David. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I want you to realize what David just did because he pointed out the problem with Saul and all of these other Israelites that are cowering in fear. Saul and the Israelites were believing that Goliath was the giant. And that was not true. Because even if he was nine feet, nine inches tall, with all of this brute strength, Goliath is a dwarf in comparison with the Lord Yahweh God. And the Lord, he is great. And he is able to deliver. This is just an uncircumcised Philistine and nobody. We follow the Lord. The Lord who has delivered me from lions and bears, he has no problem delivering me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Isn't that huge? Like it's all perspective. When we, just kind of pause real quick, when we, when we face difficult things, difficult circumstances, obstacles in front of us, the more we focus on them, the bigger they get, don't they? And they just get so big, so overwhelming, so consuming. And it's in those moments we need to realize God is greater. No matter how difficult the circumstance is, challenging the obstacle is, our God is supremely greater. He is more than able to take this circumstance or this obstacle and deliver you in the middle of it. And so David says that to Saul. 
Saul looks back at him and says, go and the Lord, may Yahweh be with you. So verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. This is almost a little ironic. Like Saul is telling David how he should go into battle. Like Saul has any ground to stand on. He's the coward sitting back here doing nothing. And David puts this on, tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Now we know, we know how big Saul was, and David was not. And so we know he was, just, he was dwarfed in this armor. But this picture of him having it on and then taking it off is symbolic on two levels. Think about it. One, he is putting off the, the stuff that this world would say you need to fight in order to show that, that the Lord alone is who I need to fight. But then, on an even deeper level, this comparison, this contrast between King Saul and the future King David, this is a picture of David saying, my kingship will look a lot different than yours. Because yours, yes, reflects the pagan, ostentatious kings who would draw attention to themselves with all the stuff they can surround. And David takes it off and says, I'm going out in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses who went out as shepherds with nothing but the provision and the promise of God. And so that's what he does. He goes, it says in verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Probably like tennis ball size. The sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now you've got the setup for UFC whatever number, like ultimate fighting championship, smackdown, whatever, is about to happen between Philistine Goliath. He's got all the stuff that this world has constructed to make him equipped for battle. And you've got David, and all he has are five stones fashioned by the hand of God himself. And the stage is set, verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Apparently he didn't see the stones. Probably wishes he'd had seen the stones, but come to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Immediately our mind, we read this, we go back. God's promise in the beginning to his people through Abraham. I will bless, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse Unbeknownst to Goliath, he has just brought down judgment upon himself by cursing the man of God. He is going to experience the curse of God. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Those are never fighting words. But... David is not to be done when it comes to Old Testament trash talk. I want you to listen to what he said. This, this is good. You know, when you get in a situation like this and you think, oh, I wish I would have said that like 
David says it all. He said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, not just yours, but all the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That's good. What David just said to Saul is clear. Saul, in just a moment, you are going to realize. All the Philistines behind you are going to realize. And all the Israelites behind me that are cowering in fear are going to realize that there is a God in Israel who is supreme. And he will not be defied by anyone. And he will demonstrate his glory in destroying you. That's strong. The battle belongs to the Lord. He will fight this for me. And so with the trash talking complete, the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. You can hear a collective gasp on both mountains. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Knocked down. Step one. Goliath falling down. Don't miss this. Hold on to this because we're going to come back to it in a second. Goliath falls down, face down on the ground. Now we're going to see in the next couple of verses talking about David killing Goliath. And there's some discussion and debate over when Goliath actually died. I think the lights went out at this point in some fashion. It's what happens when a stone sinks into your forehead. But when he actually died is really maybe a little bit more up for discussion or debate. But I want you to listen to this. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Pause. This is exactly what David had said would happen. The Lord saves not with sword and spear. And it just so happens, you go back to Leviticus and you see that the punishment for blaspheming God was, anybody know? Stoning. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. So Goliath's own sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Step two, decapitation. Now, this is, I know it's kind of gruesome, but it's the story, so go with me here. Step one, falls face down on the ground. Step two, head gone. Now, I want you to hold your place here in 1 Samuel 17. And go back with me real quick to 1 Samuel chapter 5. I want to remind you of something that had happened before this among the Philistines. You see what had happened. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 5. 
the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, like from Israel, the picture of the glory and the presence of God with his people. You don't, you don't touch it. You carry it. When they, when they end up getting it back, like somebody is struck down dead for touching it. Like this was the picture of the holiness of God. And the Philistines capture it. And when they capture it, they decide to put it in the temple where their god, Dagon, lives. And so you've got this false god, this idol, in his home. Listen to this story. Chapter 5, verse 1. The Philistines captured the ark of God. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Put them up next to each other. And listen to this. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Step one. Face downward. Before picture of the true God. Listen to what happens next. So they took Dagon, put him back in his place. Poor Dagon. Verse 4, when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Step 2, decapitation. And so the picture was false God struck down before the supremacy of the one true God. 1 Samuel 17, representative of this people, struck down and decapitated before the servant of God. This battle belongs not to David primarily. This battle belongs to the Lord. And so, naturally, the Philistines decided not to hang around into verse 51, the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, a nice token, and brought it to Jerusalem but he put his armor in his tent. Three facets to this story. The invincible character, the impossible challenge, and third, the improbable champion. Who would have thought that the champion would not be the nine-foot-nine giant, but a shepherd 20 years old or around about that. Why was he the champion? Not because of his strength or his skill, because of two primary factors. Number one, because he was passionate for the glory of God. David, don't miss this, David never saw the giant in Goliath. He knew the whole time that the giant was the Lord. And he when he came upon this scene and he saw the name of God being defiled and defamed, he could not sit idly by. And he took what seemed like a risk, what thousands of other trained Israelite soldiers did not even think about doing. He steps forward. 
in order to show the supremacy of God. Passionate about the glory of God and second, confident in the power of God. He knew the Lord who delivered him from lions and bears would deliver him from the Philistine. The battle is the Lord's, he said. He will give Goliath into my hand. And that, that is the story of David and Goliath. Now we're beginning to see how, how this story is so much more than about a shepherd boy being brave. Like there's something much, much deeper going on here. And it's much deeper than you or me saying, how can we be brave in the face of giants in this life? I want you to think with me about this story on three different levels. I want you to think with me about a level of individual history, national history, and redemptive history. Here's what I mean by that. Think of of some of the stories we've looked at already this year. Think about uh, Abraham offering his son Isaac on an altar. This story is really about three different levels. You've got individual history. You've got a father and a son and a father about to sacrifice his son. But then step it up another notch and you've got national history. This has huge ramifications, not just for Abraham and Isaac, but for the people of God in the Old Testament. This is the promised heir, the one who would bring the line of descendants and the people of Israel. And he's about to be sacrificed. And God provides a lamb for his, for the preservation of his people, the people of Israel. That's national history. Now take it up one more notch, redemptive history. And this is bigger than just a Israel in the Old Testament. This is a story of a God who takes a sacrificial lamb and provides it to preserve his people. It is a picture, a glorious picture of Christ. We, we looked at the Passover. Yes, this is a story about what happened on a particular night as Israelites fled Egypt what was going on on that level, but in a deeper way, this was God delivering his people from slavery to bring them into a new covenant, Mosaic covenant, and a promised land. This was huge. And he did it by the blood of a lamb. Takes it to a whole nother level where we see that God has redeemed us from slavery to sin, to freedom from sin, and he has done it by the blood of a lamb. Let's see individual history National history, redemptive history. It's kind of like the Google Earth thing where you look at something really closely then you broaden it out and you broaden out some more to see the whole picture. So, so think about this with me. Individual history. Smallest kind of basic level, lowest level. What we just read. Very simple. The character, the invincible character is Goliath. This is simple. And the challenge, impossible challenge, was to defeat the giant. You have character who's costed the problem, Goliath. The challenge, got to defeat the giant. Who's going to do that? Day after day, the answer the Israelites are giving is no one. Not even the king can do that. And that's where we see that God is raising up another king, which leads to the improbable champion we just talked about, David, the soon-to-be king. It's not coincidence that right before 1 Samuel 17, at the end of 1 Samuel 16, that's where we see David anointed as the future king of Israel. It's not a coincidence. Setting the stage for this picture. Individual history. Now let's take it up another notch. National history. We know that David and Goliath standing in this valley represent so much more than just themselves. It's not about a fight between two men. It's about a fight between two nations. Now we've got the characters, surrounding nations. Most notably, the Philistines. One 
historian said the Philistines were the chief national security issue for the Israelites residing in the Central Mountains. They were facing, they, here they, they had settled in the land in Judges, and things were not going well. And these pagan nations were rising up. And so the challenge is, deliver God's people. Who is going to deliver God's people from these nations and their idolatry and their immorality and the threats that they are bringing upon Israel? Who's going to do that? Israel is already succumbing to the Philistines who capture the ark or this or that. Who's going to deliver them? Is Saul going to deliver his people, God's people? Saul's sitting back doing nothing. And that's where we see that God, in a decisive way, raises up the improbable champion, David. Not just the soon-to-be king, but the shepherd king. He does become king. And this is a picture. We, we didn't read the rest of Samuel, 1 Samuel 17 and then into chapter 18, but what we find out is that David begins to be lauded, praised, higher than Saul himself. God is raising him up, David the shepherd king, who will show that there is a God who reigns over all, who will fight for his people, and this king will show that God is worthy of worship. So that's what's going on this level of national history. But this is not just a story about something that happened a few thousand years ago in a valley. This is a picture that God is painting of something much, much more wonderful and much, much greater. The story is, goes like this. The stage is set in this story. For a day when the invincible character, Satan, think about it with me, Goliath and all of his idolatry and blasphemy and immorality is a picture of something and someone much greater. He's a picture of the devil who has wooed the Philistines after foreign gods, who's wooed all of these surrounding nations after foreign gods, the devil who has wooed the Israelites themselves into idolatry and immorality and and the devil who has wooed every single one of us in this room to turn from the one true God and to follow after other gods, whether ourselves or our money or our pleasures. The devil who has lured every single one of us into what 1 Timothy 2.26 calls his snare. In the devil's snare. Invincible character. The evil one. The adversary. The impossible challenge. Destroy sin. Satan holding on. Holding captive to the hearts of man. Who will take him on? Who will fight against the prince of this world? Who will fight against the evil one who is set out on destroying God's people and defaming God's name? Will you? And the stage is set. For out of the shadows of Bethlehem, which is where David was from, out of the shadows of Bethlehem, to step an improbable champion, Born into a humble family in an impoverished condition. Living not with the armor of this world and all of its robes and ornaments, 
walking among the people, loving and caring and heading to an encounter where he will come face to face with sin and Satan and death itself on a cross. All for the glory of his father, John 12. What shall I save? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason I came. Father, glorify your name. Show your glory. And so he takes on sin and Satan and death on the cross. And by the power of God, he is raised to life. And we see the improbable champion, Jesus, our Savior, King. He has killed the giant. He has destroyed Satan. Now, now we're ready to understand what this story means for our lives. It is not go out and be brave this week when you face giants in your life. Oh, it's so much deeper than that. Think about it. I put it here in three prayers from the story that I want us to pray, me to pray, you to pray. One, God, help us then. Help us to live with passion for your glory. Help us to see your greatness over any giant and to desire your glory over anything else. The point of the story is not to be brave in the face of giants. The point is to be passionate about the glory of God. To when we face difficult circumstances and challenging obstacles in our lives, and I'm guessing across this room there are innumerable such obstacles facing you. And the reality is, when you face those obstacles and those challenges, the goal is not to focus on the giant and how do I do this with the giant or this or that. The goal is to say, God I want your name glorified in this circumstance and this obstacle. And if that means you keep the obstacle there like you did in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, and three times he asked, remove this thorn from my flesh, and God says, no, I'm going to keep it there, and my grace is going to be sufficient for you, and I'm going to be exalted in this situation, then so be it. Because more than I want to be rid of difficult circumstances, I want your glory. I want your name to be exalted. Passionate about the glory of God in every problem we face, that our passion might not be our safety or our security or our comfort or our plans or the things being worked out all the way we want them to be, that our passion would be, God, glorify your name. That's success. Glorify your name. Your name be exalted in every problem we face and then in every place we go. Oh, this picture, it just challenges me. Seeing David, hearing, coming up to the battle that first time, hearing the name of God defamed and rising up and saying, I cannot sit idly by with you all. Something must be done. So, so God raise up a people all across this room who this week scatter throughout the city of Birmingham and throughout the city in homes and neighborhoods and workplaces 
live to make the glory of God known. That doesn't mean we go out and start throwing stones and chopping people's heads off like what we do is when we're sitting with someone who does not know and does not worship and delight in the glory of God. That we do not sit silent. We tell them of his goodness and his glory and his grace. That they might know him and worship him because he is worthy of the glory of every single person in the city. And we want them to know his glory. We want his name to be exalted in this place. That's, that's the take one takeaway from this text, that we would leave this place tonight with a zeal, a passion for making the glory of God known in this city and, and obviously not stopping there. It's why we're doing what we were doing in India. Not because we were altruistic. Just think of something cool to do. No, there are millions of gods being worshipped in India. And God is not being, Yahweh God is not being glorified. And so we're not going to sit back silent. We're going to do something about it. We're going to give our resources so that God receives worship in India. That's what drives us in every problem we face, in every place we go. Second, God help us to live then with confidence in your power. Here's the beauty. God wants his glory known, and he gives his power to make his glory known. It's the whole point of what happened. The battle is the Lord's. When we are living for the glory of God, then we, it's not up to us and our strength and our skill. He gives us the divine resources of heaven to make his glory known. The battle belongs to him. So, now, think about this. In light of the fact that Christ is our Savior King, the improbable champion who has taken on sin and Satan and death itself. And he has conquered. Do you realize what this means? We, we put ourselves, when we read this story, just automatically in the shoes of David. Okay, what do we need to do like David? But the reality is, if this story is pointing us the fact that Christ has conquered on our behalf, then we're really, at this point, more in the shoes of these Israelites. Because the giant has been slain. Satan has been destroyed. Like, the battle is over. Christ has conquered sin. And you and I now are free to run and experience that victory. You realize what this means? This means we do not fight for victory. The victory has already been won. Christ has conquered sin. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And there's a huge difference there. Because in your battles with sin and temptation this week, if Christ is in you, child of God, if Christ is in you, then you are not weak in that battle. You are strong. You have power over sin. Like, don't let the adversary convince you otherwise. He is defeated. He has no power over Christ in you. He is defeated, and you are now living out the victory that Christ has bought on your behalf. 
So when you face that temptation that keeps coming back over and over and over again, know this. It does not have power over you. Christ has power over that, and he lives, he dwells in you, and gives you everything you need to overcome that. So take confidence in that. Let that sink in. Let that melt into your heart and mind that we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from a position of victory. And all of that points us to this final prayer. God, help us then to look to Jesus as our champion. He is our champion in, in every single temptation and sin we encounter. Christ is our champion. And our eyes are fixed on him. In his power for his glory. In every temptation and sin we encounter and in every trial and struggle we experience. I don't know the multiplicity of struggles and temptations and hardships and difficult circumstances that are represented around this room. But I do know this. Christ has conquered sin and suffering, Satan, and death. Therefore, you have absolutely nothing to fear. You have absolutely nothing to fear. Fix your eyes on Christ, your champion. And and as you fix your eyes on him, be passionate for the glory of God and confident in the power of God. This is the, this is the Christian life.